0: on today's episode we have got drugs we have got guns and we have got secret secret societies no it's not my saturday evening it is gatsy talks Tintin, cigars of the pharaoh Cigars of the Pharaoh, the fourth entry in the Adventures of Tintin series, sees Hergé's boy reporter travel from Egypt to Arabia and finally to India in the pursuit of a top-secret international drug smuggling ring. The story is most famous for the introduction of series regulars Thompson & Thompson, but in of itself represents a huge leap forward for Hergé's creative practice. The story opens with Tintin and Snowy enjoying a well-deserved holiday on a Mediterranean cruise ship, where they cross paths with the ill-tempered film producer Roberto Rostopopoulos and the eccentric Egyptologist Dr. Sarcophagus. When Detectives Thompson and Thompson accuse Tintin of opium smuggling after finding a stash of narcotics in his cabin, he escapes the ship and meets up again with Sarcophagus in Egypt, taking the doctor up on his offer to join him in the search for the lost tomb of the pharaoh kiosk. Inside the tomb, Tintin discovers that it is full of boxes of cigars labelled with a mysterious symbol. But before he can find out more, he and Sarcophagus are quickly knocked out by a hallucinogenic sleeping gas. Their bodies are taken aboard a smuggling ship, but to avoid the Coast Guard, the captain orders them thrown overboard. Separated from Sarcophagus at sea, they are rescued by a gunrunner who sails them to Arabia. On land, Tintin encounters Rostopopoulos once more finding him significantly more amicable this time around, gives the Thompsons the slip once more and is drafted into the local colonial army. Discovering the same cigars in the office of the garrison's colonel, Tintin is arrested as a spy and very nearly executed before being rescued by the Thompsons, who are determined to follow their orders to bring him under arrest. Tintin manages to escape from both the detectives and the army via aeroplane, but runs out of fuel and crashes into the Indian jungle there he encounters sarcophagus once more who has lost both his mind and his pants having somehow gone from endearingly eccentric to dangerously insane attempting to kill tintin later on the hypnotic command from a mysterious fakir based on a hint from the fakir tintin interrogates a famous poet who is visiting the local village who reveals that there is indeed an international drug smuggling ring that is responsible for framing and trying to kill the meddlesome reporter before he can reveal the name of the leader of the conspiracy, however, the poet is shot with a dart covered in rajaja juice, the poison of madness, by the fakir, who escapes once more, rendering the poet as insane as sarcophagus, though he does at least retain his pants. When attempting to bring these two madmen to the hospital for treatment, Tintin is institutionalized in the asylum instead, the fakir having forged a letter from the village doctor alleging that Tintin is actually the insane one. He soon escapes from the hospital by train and after eluding the Thompsons yet again and becoming separated from Dear Snowy in the process, meets the Maharaja of Gapijama, who reveals that his family has been long dedicated to fighting the drug trade, his father and brother having gone mad in the process. Thwarting an attempt to infect the Maharaja with the same poison, Tintin follows the fakir to the cartel's hideout and infiltrates a meeting. Discovering the members include many of the respected figures in the village and the colonel who tried to have Tintin executed earlier. The Thompsons arrive, having followed Snowy's lead, but rather than arrest Tintin once more, they explain that the police have raided the smugglers' Egyptian headquarters and have confirmed Tintin's innocence. The fakir escapes yet again and, along with the unseen leader of the conspiracy, kidnaps the Maharaja's son. Tintin pursues them through the mountains in a sports car rescuing the boy and capturing the fakir though the leader falls into a chasm before he can be identified tintin returns to a hero's welcome in gay pajama his second in as many books and shows the maharaja how opium was smuggled across the world in the marked cigars though he speculates whether or not the adventure is truly over Originally titled Tintin in the Orient, The Cigars of the Pharaohs was serialised between the 8th of December 1932 and the 8th of February 1934. It was a time of great change in the life of cartoonist Georges Remy, better known by his pseudonym Hergé. Professionally, he was no longer just the untrained and untested creator of a largely improvised comic strip. By 1932, Hergé had acquired a small contingent of assistants to speed along the creative process, among them Paul Germin and Germain Kikens two of the most important collaborators in Hergé's early career. At the same time, Hergé was pursuing another of his passions, graphic design, and took on an increasing number of commissions to produce visual advertisements. While Atelier Hergé, his small advertising firm, only lasted six months from January 1934, his attraction to simple, striking designs would not be abated and Hergé would continue to take advertising commissions throughout his career. It was a time of exciting change in his personal life as well. In 1932, Hergé was married to Germaine Quirkens, the secretary of his editor and mentor, Father Norbert Vélez. The marriage was orchestrated, very matter-of-factly, by Vélez himself. Even more so than Hergé, Germaine admired, even worshipped, their professional and spiritual leader. Pierre Asselini writes that, "...there was no one she admired more in the world, even to the point of adopting his uncompromising political opinions." It is not surprising that Hergé would later reflect that he found himself in the shadow of the priest throughout their marriage. His relationship with Germaine would last until 1960, though due to Belgian law, they would not be able to apply for divorce until 1977. While their romantic partnership wasn't one from the storybooks, Germaine herself admitting that Hergé wasn't her type and she would have preferred to have married an older man... Their creative partnership was a fruitful one, and her contributions to the publication of Hergé's early stories cannot be overstated. She realised immediately the importance of Tintin, both to young readers and to her husband's creative legacy, and encouraged Hergé to make the boy reporter a priority over his graphic design. At the same time, Tintin as a character was beginning to break free from the constraints of Father Velez's political ideology – The Tintin comics had originally been conceived by Velez primarily as a way to entertain children while teaching them the virtues of Catholic nationalist conservatism. By 1932, however, the character had become much more than a propaganda device, and Le Vétiem Cicle was selling as many as ten times more copies on Thursday when the next chapter of Tintin's adventures were published, while Hergé's work had begun to appear outside of Belgium, serialised in popular papers of the Catholic press in France, Switzerland, and Portugal. In what Asselini describes as his first act of defiance against Father Velez, Hergé would meet with a representative from the Union of Artistic Property to inquire about the balance of creative control between Hergé and the paper in which his work appeared. He would ultimately stay with Levetium Cclay until it was closed during German occupation, but it appears that by July 1932 he was determined that Tintin would remain his and not Father Velez's creation. This growing creative independence is perhaps why Cigars is less concerned with moralizing than with travel and adventure. Auger, too busy working to see the world, would send Tintin in his place, and with the first three stories taking place in Europe, Africa, and North America respectively, the mysterious Orient would be the next logical destination. The story appeared only a decade after the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb in 1922 and the alleged curse of the pharaoh that captured the public imagination. The idea of a cursed tomb would be explored more dramatically in the later Tintin adventure Seven Crystal Balls. In Cigars, Urge merely takes the aesthetics of Oriental mysticism, portrayed most creatively in Tintin's hallucinogenic dream sequence inside the tomb, with the hard-edged world of drug smuggling and gun running. These are not Tintin's assignment, however. For once, the boy reporter isn't looking for trouble, and he is in fact enjoying a well-deserved holiday when trouble manages to find him, framed and hounded in true Hitchcockian fashion. Harry Thompson notes that, Whereas Soviets, Congo, and America introduce hazards at random intervals, cigars of the pharaoh induces a genuine sense of fear without recourse to deus ex machina. Indeed, for the first time, there is mystery in the series. Tintin is hunted once more, but this time we are not sure by whom. Even by the end of the story, the mysterious ringleader of the smuggling ring is never seen and is not until the conclusion of the story's sequel, The Blue Lotus, that Tintin discovers it is in fact Rostopopoulos, the bombastic film producer Tintin aggravates aboard the cruise ship in the opening scene, but who later appears as a magnanimous and generous ally. In a sign of his increasing narrative ability, Hergé litters clues to solving this mystery throughout the pages of Cigars. The poet Zolti manages to stammer, The boss, film, don't trust, before succumbing to madness. Similarly, on the final page of the revised edition, there is a newspaper clipping discussing the arrest of the drug ring, while the story next to it, almost entirely obscured by the panel's frames, reports that Rostopopoulos has mysteriously gone missing. Recalling the slapdash, seat-of-your-pants action of Land of the Soviets, published only three years earlier, and it is clear how far Hergé has come in plotting his stories in advance. However, Harry Thompson also notes that the story still obviously suffers from being written on a week-by-week basis, and the author's decision to change locations midway from the Middle East to India necessitates a sharp degree of coincidence, with Tintin running into both Sarcophagus and Detectives Thompson and Thompson in India by sheer chance. However, Hergé is of course far from the only author to utilise coincidence to further a plot. Culturally as well, we are mostly spared any grotesque national or ethnic stereotyping. The Arabs and the Indians are ill-tempered and fanatical, but the real villains are a clique of European colonial elites, though the inclusion of their purple Ku Klux Klan garb appears too clumsy to be a direct indictment of the American group, and is probably instead designed to evoke images of secret societies generally. The attempts by the Hindu devotees to slaughter Snowy for disrespecting a sacred cow remain pretty patronizing today, but whether because Hergé was embarrassed by the nationalist chauvinism of the earlier Tintin in the Congo, or because the colonial masters in this case are British and not Belgian, Tintin's exploits in Egypt, Arabia, and India aren't focused on extolling the white man's burden. The colonial mission, integral to Tintin's second adventure, is only a memory by his fourth. Similarly, Hergé seems to make amends for the wholesale animal slaughter in the Congo by having Tintin befriend a herd of elephants without even murdering one of them. The carving of a wooden horn as a means to communicate in elephant language, however, seems to be a childish and cartoonish holdover from his earlier writing. By book number four, such instances are becoming rare. In cigars, Hergé is also beginning to flex his creative muscles in creating memorable and dynamic characters for his hero to interact with. As Michael Farr notes, Hergé was creating a cast of characters, a family around Tintin and Snowy that he could draw on in the future to give the narrative both a feeling of depth and familiarity. Far cites this family dynamic, along with the greater degree of detail and accuracy in Hergé's artwork, as part of a formula that would make Tintin an enduring success, and part of the reason Cigars of the Pharaohs should be regarded as a key adventure in the series' development. Though this story marks the only appearance of Dr. Sarcophagus, with his Edwardian dress and absent-mindedness, he is often regarded as a prototype for series' regular Professor Calculus, who would not debut for another decade. Rostopopoulos would reappear as the main antagonist in both The Red Sea Sharks and Flight 714 to Sydney, and is often regarded as Tintin's arch-nemesis. The revised edition also retroactively marks the debut of Alan, the treacherous sea captain, who would later appear as Rostopopoulos' accomplice, though he remains unnamed and only has a small appearance here. However, the most important characters included in Cigars of the Pharaohs are undoubtedly the detectives Thompson with a P and Thompson without a P. Relentless, hapless and indistinguishable from each other except by the curve of their mustaches. The inspiration from their design may have come from Urge's father and uncle, who were twins that often dressed identically to cause confusion. Their design also bears a striking resemblance to two detectives photographed on a 1919 cover of French magazine Le Mirror, resplendent with matching suits, mustaches and bowler hats, though Hergé, typically happy to cite his inspirations, swore he never saw the issue in question. In the original edition of Cigars, the detectives are identified only as Agents X33 and X33A, with their names coming later and remaining unique in every language. Dupont and Dupond in French, Hernandez and Fernandez in Spanish, Skapti and Skapti in Icelandic. They are humorous in their debut appearance, but not the clowns they would become. Indeed, series regulars may be surprised at exactly how competent the detectives are in their first outing, managing to save both Tintin from a firing squad and Snowy from ritual execution with a sense of cunning that would abandon them in later adventures. In the 19 books that follow Cigars, the Thompsons would appear in all but two of them, and are integral supporting characters within the Tintin canon, second only perhaps to Captain Haddock and Professor Calculus. The Maharaja of Guy would be the first of many despots Tintin would befriend on his travels. Pierre Skilling asserts that Urge saw monarchy as the ultimate form of governance, though later sovereigns such as General Alcazar and Amir Mohammed Ben Khalil Shazab would have their megalomania satirized more than the saintly Maharaja. It's quite possible that Urge never shook Valaise's distrust in parliamentary democracy. While the changing Tintin adventures reflect the author's growing liberalism, it would be untrue to argue that democratic values are ever championed in the series and more often than not absolute monarchs providing they're good people are ultimately a force for good in herge's world cigars of the pharaohs would be the first book to drop the tintin in prefix of the title and was the first story published in hardcover format by publishing house casterman before undergoing a number of changes when revised in color a little over two decades later In the revision, some scenes, such as Tintin using a block of chocolate to distract a nest of snakes in the kiosk tomb, are removed altogether. Similarly, the generic Arabian city in which Tintin explores is explicitly Mecca, where Tintin is forced to disguise his whiteness. He is chased out not for dodging conscription, as in the later edition, but because he is exposed as a Christian in the holy Islamic city. These revisions in 1956 seem aimed at making cigars fit in seamlessly with the contemporary Tintin stories, resulting in some truly odd continuity errors when reading the albums in chronological order. For example, Snowy remarks that he would be perfectly happy at Marlinspike, the chateau that would not become their home for another decade. After his first encounter with Rostopopoulos, Tintin comments that it's not the first time they've met, even though, of course, it actually is. This comment can at least be seen to still make sense within the story's canon, as there is an unnamed figure at the banquet scene in Tintin America that bears a striking resemblance to rust More nonsensical, however, is when Patash Pasha tells Tintin he is a fan of his adventures and shows him a real-world copy of the album Destination Moon, a story that Hergé wouldn't write until 1953. For Tintin enthusiasts, these are glaring, but ultimately amusing errors in continuity. I took to the Adventures of Tintin subreddit to ask some Tintin fans what they thought of Cigars of the Pharaoh and where it stood in relation to the rest of the series, and I'd like to go through some of the responses here. Username Kurafai says, For me, this album is the beginning of the modern Tintin albums, and it announces the Blue Lotus, which is the first serious album. That's why I consider the Cigars as a very important album, not weak, that I still like reading after years. A great adventure. I understand what you mean about the first sort of modern Tintin album. As I've said previously, I think you can mark those first three, Tintin, the land of the Soviets, in the Congo, in America, as very much Urge learning as he goes. This very much seems like his first concerted effort to make a coherent and exciting story. And I think something that affects Cigars the Pharaoh's legacy today is that it immediately precedes... The Blue Lotus, which is considered by many to be the first masterpiece. You know, Cigars of the Pharaoh doesn't get that same sort of reception. It's sort of regarded as the lead up to sort of the, the better sequel in The Blue Lotus. But I think, I think in terms of OJ's craft, everything is present there. So I would agree that it is uh, the first modern Tintin album, absolutely. Username Novo Magocho says, Cigars of the Pharaoh is one of the best. I love the story and the mystery in this one. It has some memorable side characters like the Maharaja and the Fakir and introduces us to one of the main villains, Rostopopoulos. But mostly I like how it led to probably my favourite book, The Blue Lotus. But I think you're right about the side characters there. We saw some of that in... Tintin in America, crafting these very funny or very interesting, dynamic supporting characters. And I think, you know, I think Maharaj is a bit sort of bland for my liking. He's just this really nice king. Like, I think when it came to Urge satirizing monarchs and despots, you know, Alcazar and um, Mohammed Ben Khalish Shahzab, I think they're a lot funnier. Definitely having the Fakir as this mysterious villain that's sort of hunting Tintin is, I think it's a step up from just the sort of the gangsters and the thugs from earlier stories. Username Don Mills Finest comments, To me, it's the proto-Tintin. It flows much better than the previous three books, and it has a much more complex and interesting story that continues into two books. It relies less on stereotypes and more on research, and isn't a propaganda piece, although it doesn't have nearly as much research as the books that would follow. Auger also comes into his own as an artist in this one, as he draws more creative scenes like the one where Tintin is hallucinating in the Pharaoh's tomb. Essentially, it's a Tintin book that sets the stage for probably what is the most important in the whole series, the Blue Lotus. All the hallmarks of the Blue Lotus that will become staples of the series were first explored in Cigars of the Pharaoh. A great book and one that sets the stage for the immense work that will follow. I agree with, yeah, quite a lot of that. I mentioned in the review how, for the first time, we've got this element of mystery there. You know, we're not sure who is after Tintin. And even at the end of the story, we've got this cliffhanger. We're not sure who the... The ringleader of this uh, secret society was, even though the clues were sort of littered throughout. I think that represents a, a serious step forward. Also mentioned how it's not so much a propaganda piece. It was sort of the first one, as I said in the review, where it wasn't Norbert Velez saying, "All right, here's what, here's how we can use Tintin to uh, further the, you know, this this ideology." It was a lot more inspired by Urge's interest in 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 you know the rest of the world, and I think that does reflect in yeah the research which we've got some pictures of sort of the comparisons of the, of the research in Hergé's articles and the finished product. And that dream sequence where he hallucinates in the tomb is really creative and something we don't really see a lot of in the Tintin series, but it's very, very well done. It's really a creative stretch from what he exercised previously. Username camo I hope I'm saying that right, comments, one of the weakest. To me, it feels very much like a transitional album, where Urge started telling a more coherent story, but it still has some of the more episodic and disjointed elements that he had in his earlier work. I do see the merit in that as well, especially with this sort of slapdash changing of locations going from um, Egypt to Arabia to India. And corny five jokes responds, agreed, I think that Urge really gets into his element with the Black Island. So that's interesting. We won't cover the Black Island in this season of Gatsy Talks 1010, but i I do really have a soft spot for the Black Island. But it is interesting to see that someone say he doesn't come into his element with until uh, the Black Island, because most people put it down to the Blue Lotus as he's coming into his element. Username Trashboat Films fan says, I'm a big fan of the storytelling and the journey in multiple settings. It's cool to see the plot unravel into the Blue Lotus. Blue Lotus is superior, but Cigars of the Pharaohs introduces a lot of plot devices in addition to Thompson and Thompson. So there you go. Trashboat Films fan uh, actually likes the the multiple settings. Username Sof underscore poor comments definitely one of the weaker stories. It was an earlier one before OJ started doing a ton of research for his stories to get a realistic setting. It has a plot that is too close in many ways to the crab with the golden claws, but with a weaker story. It introduces the Thompsons and leads into the Blue Lotus, the first strong Tintin story. But other than that, I can't think of anything remarkable about it. These days, when I do read through, I start with the Blue Lotus, so I skip this one altogether. So there you go, we've got again Blue Lotus as a, as a, as a logical starting point. And yes, there are similarities with uh, Crab with the Golden Claws, which will be explored in next season of Gatsy Talks Tintin. Marcel underscore the underscore drunkard says, it is definitely one of the weaker stories in my opinion. It suffers from the same kind of uneven story that a lot of the earlier books do. It almost feels like a bunch of different short stories were pasted together at times. On the other hand, it is the beginning of the Blue Lotus adventure and still a very fun and entertaining book. In short, not the worst one at all, but definitely not as good as the later ones. Yeah, I think I think you can say by this stage, quality of the Tintin books is improving each time. So it makes sense that it is better than the previous ones, but not as good as the later ones. Username FlatTO0 says, As a child, this story really freaked me out, especially with Tintin getting drugged at ending up at sea. There were definitely some unhinged parts of the story, mainly with the cult-like nature of the organization and the fakir who is the reason I have a lock on my windows. However, within all that, there is a well-written crime story with some great humor and serious elements. I would choose its immediate successor, Tintin and the Blue Lotus, but Cigars is still a great comic in my opinion. Interesting, you don't hear often about a Tintin inspiring a lot of, you know, uh, scary moments. Um, you don't hear a lot about children getting scared by Tintin, but that that Fakir with his hypnotic gaze, you know, creeping in through your window, I totally understand. Username, <laughs> Bollock says I quite like this title. I'm from India myself, so it was great to have an Indian setting. It's the first book which has a lot of connections with the book that follow. There you go. Uh, Tintin America was great, but disconnected from the rest of the book slightly. This one sets up a lot of characters and really sets the tone for the future books to come. I agree. Corny Five Jokes says this one's tough. It's the first one with Thompson and Thompson, but it was before he had their personalities down, so the comedy doesn't quite hit. It was also one of the first Tintin stories in general. I like it, but definitely not one of my favourites. That being said, all my favourites have Captain Haddock and Calculus as well, so maybe I just dislike the lack of my favourites. Yeah, Thompson and Thompson are very different in this one. Well, not very different, but they're not... You're quite right. They don't have their absolute, you know, on-point comedic timing that they'd later have. And, uh, yeah, it's definitely interesting. You know, we associate Captain Haddock and Calculus and the Thompsons as core parts of the Tintin family. You can't almost imagine having a a book without them. But, yeah, there were quite a few that that didn't have those characters there and finally david kemp will says in the lower half but still incredible i actually think the ending with the secret society and the cliffhanger is one of the best endings in the series we don't get a lot of cliffhangers in the tintin series i think that's important to note we have sort of you know two-part stories that lead on to them but we don't really have a lot of suspense and mystery at the end that you know makes the reader want to find out more but at the end we're still not sure who is behind this secret society you know this the the sub story sort of wraps up but we know there's more there. We know there's more mystery to come. And I think that is that is very, very well done. And I think it's fantastic that Urge was able to introduce Rasta but not reveal he was the ringleader of everything until the next story. Thank you to everybody that took the time to contribute their thoughts on Cigars of the Pharaoh. I've said before, I don't want this podcast just me, me ranting about Tintin and sort of, you know, explaining it. And, you know, going into the history of it. I want to see what people actually think of it. I wanted to be a Tintin fan podcast. So thanks for everybody who took the time. The, so the consensus seems to be an improvement from the previous three, but overshadowed by its immediate successor. And I have to agree with that. But I will say... I will say all the pieces are in place for Auger to really, really write a fantastic Tintin story. And I think from the next story onwards, everything is pretty much... A home run with maybe some few exceptions that really maybe miss the mark a little bit I think it's really really consistent from the next story onwards so for the next episode of Gatsby Talks Tintin the season finale if you will we will be exploring what is uh, referred to by Tintinologist Michael Farr as not Urge's only masterpiece but Urge's first masterpiece Tintin and the Blue Lotus in the meantime, I would love it if you would follow me on Instagram at tintin.podcast. You can also check out the show at uh, richard.com slash tintin. That's L-A-T-T-E-R-A-T-U-R-E slash tintin. For a bit of a look at behind the scenes, the research and the creation of these, um, these albums. As always, though, thank you so much for listening, Tintin Heads. And I will see you next time.